Hello and welcome to the Talk Spot. I'm Tim Scott and today we're doing another NPS update. It's been about six months since our last one, so time to find out what's happening in the world of NPS. And with me today, as usual, I have Connor Crean from UNODC, Alex Kratulski from CFSRE in the United States, and Michael Evans-Brown from EMC DDA. Welcome, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. So this is good timing. We're doing this uh, recording right now in October because the UNODC current NPS threats report has just come out. So this is the fifth one of these reports that's come out. Uh, Connor, tell us, first of all, what what is this report and what's the data that it's based on? Sure. The report is uh, an output of the toxicology portal of the UNODC Early Warning Advisory, which was the portal itself was created in collaboration with, with TIAFT and its member laboratories in which we had a, an expert group meeting. We brought all the toxicology experts to Vienna and asked them what information they collect and how they could provide it to us so that we could then distill it, analyze it, and feed it back to them. So through data collection exercises that we carried out with these laboratories in the last year, we produced this report, and it's based on maybe 1,400 cases that were analyzed over the last uh, six to nine months. And it is complemented with information that we have on uh, general trends within, on NPS within the last year or so. That's a combination of information from toxicology labs, but also from substances that have been identified in drug seizures. So just the main highlights from that report that we've noticed at the moment are that overall, there's approximately 1,150 NPS have been reported globally. In terms of substance and toxicology cases, benzodiazepines continue to be uh, prevalent in, in mostly in driving under the influence of drugs cases, but also in other cases, including postmortems, although contributory or not to, to outcomes, they have been identified. And synthetic opioid MPS are continuing to be an issue and are being reported both in seizures and in toxicology cases are the main points, I would say, at this stage. Yeah, so over 1,150 now we're up to in total across the time that they've been being detected. But perhaps the number of current ones are not increasing because there's some that are falling off as new ones are coming on. Is that, is that a fair assessment yes. of the situation? For sure. If we look at the substances that have been reported globally, there are no countries that have reported more than... Uh, uh, there, I think there are three or four countries that have reported more than several hundred. So there, nobody has found that many NPS. Um, if you look at the number of substances which tend to be reported each year, these fluctuate somewhat year on year on what those substances are, but we get about 500 substances reported globally uh, every year for the last five years. So there's some, some, in some ways there are other substances that are persisting, um, but maybe not the number of new substances each year is not at the peak that it was several years ago. So I think that's what we're seeing as looking at the the overall global global picture that we see. Yeah, I mean, it, quite similar, I, I reckon, in Europe as well. I mean, so far this year, we've um, we've had thirty uh, MPS notified, which is um, possibly a little bit of a dip compared to uh, previous years. But overall, we we've got just over nine hundred MPS that we're monitoring, and we see about. 380 to 400 of these each year, but in vastly different quantities. You know, the vast majority are in sort of relatively small amounts. It's just a, a small number that we see in in kind of those larger amounts. I mean, I don't I don't know what's going to happen for the rest of the year, but as I say, 30 so far, we're coming towards the end of the year. We had 52 last year. 
So I'm just wondering whether we are actually seeing a dip in the number of uh, new MPS appearing on the market each year in Europe, certainly for this year. I think what's interesting, we, we talked about this last time, is that so far, 60% of the substances that we've seen this year are all synthetic cannabinoids, which is exceptionally unusual. We've only seen one opioid, two benzos, four cathinones, a couple of other um, sort of substances. So it's, it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, obviously, we discussed last time as well about, you know, the impacts, potential impacts of the uh, generic controls in, in China. And, and, and also, I, I'm not really sure who's using synthetic cannabinoids much anymore in Europe. I know, we, again, we touched on that, but it, it's, it's all up in the air. I'm not really quite sure. Uh, yeah, that's uh, a good bit of information, Mike. And I would say that at least here in the, in the United States, we're seeing the same. The overwhelming majority of new NPS that we're identifying are synthetic cannabinoids, or at least related to that class. Uh, and we too have not seen many opioids. But uh, just going back for a moment to the current threat report from UNODC, uh, I think it's a great piece and it has a lot of information. And I think it's it's really fascinating to see that information pulled together worldwide, uh, especially when uh, a lot of us are focused on our uh, on our own countries and our and our own areas. But I was looking through and uh, comparing to a couple of different reports, and it does seem like the percentage of synthetic opioids is increasing. Um, I don't know if that's related to more labs uh, in the United States reporting or if if that really is related to a lot more synthetic opioid identifications in other parts of the world. But yeah, it seems like that number is, uh, it's certainly not rivaling stimulants and, and synthetic cannabinoids yet, but it's getting up there. And that's certainly of pretty big public health concern when we when we think about these different classes. Yeah, if I was looking at the, the new substances that, that have been reported this year, the third largest group are, is synthetic opioids. And not in terms of, you know, this is in terms of individual substances reported, not in overall reports of substances. So the, the opioids, maybe it's because, I don't know, there are a number of nitazines are just branching out into the number of nitazines that have been reported. Maybe people are more aware of looking for them, so they're identifying them also in countries uh, beyond North America. But um, the majority of the cases that we do see of opioids and or benzodiazepines uh, are from the North, North America. But carfentanil, we saw carfentanil reported and, and continuing to be reported, which is unusual. Yeah, I mean, we, we still see carfentanil uh, in some places in Europe. I, I mean, we, we launched our EWS update uh, report, I think, in uh, June this year, which looked at 25 years of early warning. And we've got the seizure data there from uh, the aggregated seizure data, I should say, from 2020. And particularly for the opioids, it's interesting what we see is that the vast majority in terms of quantity being seized, which is a relatively small amount compared to obviously the US and Canada, and uh, the numbers of seizures uh, dominated by isocinitazine and, uh, and carfentanil. And as I said, in terms of notifications of new substances, this year we've seen only one opioid, which is down from six last year and 10 in uh, 2020. And in fact, the opioid that was, which is a nitazine opioid that was notified this year, was actually identified for the first time last year. So what's happening to the new synthetic opioid market in Europe, again, is really sort of unclear at the moment. I mean, one thing that continues to dominate are the cathinones and a small number of those cathinones that we, um, it's going to sound boring, but we talked about them before, 3-methylmethcathinone, 3-chloromethcathinone. Again, some really large-scale seizures by custom authorities at the beginning of this year, um, three tons 
in a single seizure. And that continues alongside seizures of illicit labs making for chloromethcathinone and for methylmethcathinone. So those kind of two, um, sorry, those four uh, cathinones really kind of like dominating uh, our markets at the moment, but from obviously different sources. Mike, one thing that I'd like to get kind of uh, your thoughts on this, because we've been thinking about this same phenomenon. Uh, as I said, we haven't seen as uh, as many new opioids this year, different from Europe. Our synthetic stimulant uh, sort of market is dominated by dimethylphenylone, uh, which isn't surprising. I mean, there certainly are those differences we've seen in the past. Uh, but one thing it, it feels like to me, and this is something that I've hypothesized, is that it, it kind of feels like the labs that are uh, that are making these NPS and shipping them around the world uh, are so focused on finding a synthetic cannabinoid that works right now that I'm wondering if that process has overwhelmed them that that they're just not focused on uh, those other areas. And I mean, that could be a wrong assumption, but that's sort of how it seems when we when we look at synthetic cannabinoids, we've got these different pots, we've got things that are precursors, we've got things that are inactive, we've got things that do have some potential and may have some uh, CB1 activity and, and some of those studies are going on right now. But I just wonder how much that has affected that China ban on, on indole and indazole synthetic cannabinoids. I just wonder how much that has affected other areas in ways that maybe people hadn't thought of. Yeah, I, I don't have the answer, but I think it's really, I mean, it's really interesting what's going on at the moment. As you say, I mean, we've we've managed to get a few of these cannabinoids tested. And as you say, some of them are not active. Some are a little bit active. Maybe a couple are like quite active as well. And there's a whole variety of things in there that, you know, we've we've notified some of them based on the precautionary principle because we're not really sure if they are precursors or whether they are actually receptor agonists, as it were. So uh, I don't know, and I, and I don't know what the potential impact of the pandemic in terms of the supply chain from China is, ha is having you know, right now. Clearly, I mean, as I say, those, we've got those large seizures of a small number of cathinones from India, but from China, it, I'm not really sure you know, what, is, what is happening there in terms of production as well. So I don't have any answers, really. <laughs> maybe, maybe in six months' time, you know. Do we know anything about the manufacturers of NPS? Is it a, a hugely diverse group of manufacturers who specialize in a particular thing, cathinones or synthetic cannabinoids, opiates, or are there a few big players behind it manufacturing these things? Do we know anything about that? I mean, I, I would say, so I don't know much about the actual origins and the, the exact labs that uh, some of these drugs are being manufactured in. Um, but I can say from our time looking at surface web gray market sites, there's certainly a link between all of these. I don't think it's coincidental that the same drug appears across multiple sites for sale the same day or the same week. Um, there is some indication that some of these sites are linked. And I don't know if that means they're linked by the same, uh, they're fueled by the same lab, they are then their own manufacturer or their own vendor themselves, and then they're selling things. But the way that these these drugs appear on these sites for sale makes it feel like the, the universe or the world of this is is much smaller than, than we may think it is. I mean, I would say it is a bit of a black box, you know, and what you're saying totally mirrors, you know, our limited understanding of producers. What I would say, you know, from what we appear to see from the cathinone production in India is it's largely limited to cathinones, certainly in terms of coming into Europe right now, maybe some ketamine derivatives and so on. But still, after all this time, we have quite limited understanding of what's happening in a lot of these producer countries. Yeah, I think one of the, the things that has driven change a lot in the last number of years has been 
there's more responses by member states, countries nationally with different legislation that they have. If they had started off with one type of legislation, others have also evolved their generic definitions and evolved their uh, use of generic plus also other types of legislation. So it's maybe it's posing more of a challenge to to people to manufacture things other than just to bypass legislation, which doesn't necessarily have any uh, influence on activity. I think we're seeing for just to, to look maybe at the cathinones that we've seen reported new this year, they're like N-butyl and N-cyclohexyl or derivatives of existing substances or, you know, just changing the, the position of the alkyl or halogen atom on the aromatic ring. There's like, this has been done for some substances, but they're now just applying it to some of the other substances. So there's not a huge amount of innovation in contrast to maybe to the cannabinoids in recent years where there's definitely been some innovation in the in the introduction of new types of functional groups. But it's uh, it's a complicated uh, system, a complicated picture to try and kind of make any general kind of interpretations. Though. Yeah, speaking of that kind of substitution, we're talking about carfentanil before. I'm a bit surprised that we haven't seen more derivatives of carfentanil, given that it's it's you know the most potent one we know of, and we're seeing a lot of fentanyl derivatives, obviously. But something like fluorocarfentanil or something obvious like that, well, something that I would think would be obvious, we we haven't seen anything like that, to my knowledge. No, and I, I wonder, you know, to an extent, maybe Alex might have more of an idea of this in terms of fentanyl opioids that are that are reported. What proportion of the of the market are is not fentanyl itself? Because I think that probably still drives the main urge in this market. Uh, yeah, and when we see a whole lot of fentanyl, a decent amount of fluorofentanyl, uh, and not a whole lot of anything else, we still do, still do see carfentanil and. Uh, and we've looked into it, and, and some of those cases are from Canada. But it's a good it's a good question, Tim. Um, I think that it probably goes back to uh, the ease of synthesis. Carfentanil is just a little bit more complex in structure. Um, there's a lot more precursors that are available for the sort of basic fentanyl backbone rather than that modification at the four position. That I think that 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 might play into it. That, that it's just a little bit trickier and and sometimes with this easier is better especially if you have people trying to do this in in not so scientific of conditions but there's also been a number of fentanyl precursors that have been placed under international control in the last uh, few years so that's five now in total so it's probably influences the direction in which it's easier to modify synthetic routes to go than to go down more complicated ways we just don't see new fentanyls appearing on the market in Europe anymore, as we've you know said, you know, not since 2019. And most of the car fentanyl that's been seized, you know, in t- at least in 2020, was in Latvia. The same for isotinitazine as well. The only other fentanyl that's sort of seized in any large-ish quantity is ocfentanyl that just continues to be around in Europe in small amounts, often being missold as, uh, as, as heroin. But that's, I mean, that's largely it for us. Well, speaking of things being missold as other things, let's pivot to benzodiazepines because fake Xanax is everywhere at the moment and who knows what it really is. It could be any anything, but it usually does seem to be some kind of benzodiazepine. So, you know, the UNODC report mentioned that benzodiazepines are, are one of the most prominent across all case types. There's drugs in driving, drug-facilitated crime, post-mortem, and, I mean, benzodiazepines in general, prescription benzodiazepines like diazepam and temazepam, they're extremely prevalent just among the general population. So it's not really surprising 
I suppose. But what are we seeing at the moment in terms of benzodiazepines? You know, from from what we can see from toxicology cases, it's it's the same small number of substances that are, are being reported, primarily fluoprazolam, um, etizolam, clonazolam. We have seen some increasing reports of bromazolam in the last, and this is you know not new new, but in the last year or so. So I think also those three have been placed under international control, and bromazolam is a substance that will be looked at by the expert committee of drug dependence of WHO next week, their meeting to look at substances to consider for scheduling. One of the things that interests me is that many of these substances are quite potent, uh, a quite small amounts. So they tend to be produced in almost a very well done way to, to have the concentration ranges in these fake tablets are correct according to the potency of their substance. If not, they're, they're going to cause more harm for sure. In the, in the United States, we've certainly seen um, an explosion of, as I call it, uh, or an exponential increase back in 2020 of, of positivity for NPS benzos. And uh, as Connor said, they're, uh, for us, they're actually the smallest class in terms of number of compounds, but they are the largest class in terms of number identifications uh, in cases. So we see uh, just an overwhelming uh, majority of, of NPS benzos, and it's, uh, it's, it's all of those uh, that, that Connor mentioned. Uh, we're, we are seeing a little bit of a downturn for tizolam and fluoprazolam, uh, likely due to those international controls. Uh, and the, the one that we're really monitoring really heavily right now is bromazolam and, and seeing it sort of uh, increase over time. Um, one thing that is a problem here in the United States is this new uh, sort of benzodiazepine opioid combination or benzodope. Uh, certainly that's not a, a new phenomenon uh, to our Canadian colleagues. Um, but here in the U.S., it does seem to manifest a little bit differently. We have uh, very differing ranges and amounts of the benzodiazepines and opioids. It's not always just a small amount of the benzodiazepine. Uh, it can sometimes be a very large amount. So it makes some of these cases kind of difficult, especially when you're trying to uh, to figure out, well, was it just the fentanyl that caused the death or was the benzodiazepine a contributor? And, and there's sometimes there, it's sometimes you just can't uh, can't sort of figure that out. But that's something that we've been uh, sort of monitoring here. And, and really, the reason we've seen this increase in these NPS benzos is, is mostly related to uh, the increase in their positivity with fentanyl. Um, and then the other point that, that Connor made is, yeah, we, we've done a little bit of work in looking at how much of these benzos, uh, these NPS benzos, end up in counterfeit Xanax tablets. Uh, and it can really be all over the map. Uh, for example, we had a tablet that we estimated had about three milligrams of bromazolam in it. So comparatively to potentially a two milligram alprazolam tablet that is about uh, 50% more. And, and we're trying to get some more of this data to really understand. Um, I think that the population that's using counterfeit Xanax is fortunately a population that understands not taking the whole bar or, uh, or breaking it down. So there's a lot of harm reduction initiatives that can sort of go along with those. But yeah, when you have these, these NPS benzos that are increasing in potency and you have their unknown amount uh, in a counterfeit tablet, it, it definitely makes for a sometimes a scary situation. Yeah, I th I, just to go to what you were saying, Alex, about the potential changes away from atizolam and, and fluoralprazolam, I think we're starting to see that now in Europe um, as a result of the international controls. And certainly we're, we're starting to see other benzodiazepines become uh, more prominent. Um, so we'll have to see what happens uh, for the rest of the year. As I say, we had, we've had two this year. So overall, we, we've got 35 that we're monitoring, but mo most of those were notified, you know, around 2015, 16. And, and then subsequently, you've seen them in the US and, and Canada. And they've, I mean, 
we don't see many of the the 35 or in certainly in any large quantities the you know it was um certainly 2020 2021 dominated by atislam and fluvalprazlam but again overall quite small levels of of seizures a thousand seizures four and a half kilograms of uh, of material and about 60,000 tablets in in 2020 but where we know the vast majority of those being sold as fake uh, Xanax and and alprazlam so this year we've had flu atislam which uh, we've seen in four countries so far. So I'm wondering whether this will be a potential replacement for uh, Atizolam. And you'll have to help me out with, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, but Desalkal-G-Diazepam, is that how you pronounce it? That is, so we are also uh, seeing that and, and seeing it in increasing identifications, yes. Yeah, so I, I looked at the um, Health Canada's website the other day and they're seeing, they've seen quite a few identifications recently. Um, so that's something that we're we're keeping an eye on um, because we d- we don't have <laughs> much understanding of its uh, of its pharmacology being uh, an active metabolite. Uh, yeah, Mike, I would pronounce that as well as desalkyl gadazepam. I'm not sure if that's how others are pronouncing it. I know some are <laughs> calling it the bromo nordiazepam because it sort of gives a bit of a a different uh, vis- visual of the structure. I don't think people are really understanding the gadazepam, although it's been a medicine for for a while. But yeah, we are seeing those increasing identifications and I'm not aware of any of them being, uh, at least in toxicology samples, with the parent drug. So this is truly sort of an NPS type scenario, uh, just as we were seeing desalkyl florazepam and, uh, and some of those other active metabolites. Yeah, let's see if some of these new substances to replace some of the ones that have been there for a few years and have would have been placed under international control. Let's hope that the, the, one of the things is getting the member states nationally to have these things included in their own national legislation, which also is a process that takes time. But hopefully this will start to make a, an impact and then maybe some of these substances will just disappear off the market for the obscure benzos. Yeah, we've mentioned uh, pharmacology of some of these things when they first come out, obviously, we don't know a lot about the pharmacology. They do tend to follow certain types of pathways, which you might be able to predict or guess a little bit. But one of the issues for toxicology labs is that you might get all different kinds of samples. You might get blood, you might get urine. If you're getting urine, you're only really looking for the metabolites sometimes, and we don't always know what they are. And quantifying them is often for the case, not that important. Just the finding of the presence of them is the important thing. But quantifying them in terms of working out what types of levels should we expect to see in these cases, just to sh- share the information, you know, amongst everyone who's doing the same kind of work, that's a really important thing. But it's something that I think f- just falls to the bottom of the priority list for Tox Labs. Any, any thoughts on whether we should be quantifying these things in urine or how people can do it in a better way? It's for us. It's it's on the list of the the manuals that we produce for laboratories that we are updating. The last benzodiazepine manual has been around for quite some time. We're going in the process of revising that update, so we'll provide hopefully sufficient guidance for methods that can be used for analysis and identification and quantification in different matrices. I guess maybe there's certain I've started to see. We, we put this in the NBS threats report. Some of the re, more recent literature. Uh, that people are doing and i think if there's more research into this and also more reference materials available for people to be able to to do this or else maybe it's determining which reference materials they should prioritize Uh, i think there's a couple of contributing factors that mean okay we can't just we just can't quantify because we don't have all of the things that we need in order to meet our analytical requirements for quantification 
I would say there's sort of a, a workflow or a process or a, a wish list. Uh, first is just identifying in general, let alone uh, getting to the point of qualitatively or quantitatively reporting. Uh, and Tim, I know you that in the different toxicology meetings that, that we go to, sometimes that can be challenging because you've got resources and funding and different lab perspectives that, that sort of play into that. But I'm always a huge proponent of quantifying NPS in general. I think that we'll never get to a point of knowing what the numbers mean unless we start sort of getting those numbers. Uh, urine numbers, I don't think for NPS are probably all that important to myself. I know that as someone who sits and actually reviews cases and, and, and interprets these forensic toxicology cases, especially postmortem cases, having more quantitative data is always important, especially for, as I mentioned before, for NPS benzodiazepines when we're seeing them in these benzodope combinations. If I don't know if it's a little bit of fluoprazolam or a lot of fluoprazolam with fentanyl, I mean, that interpretation is, is really difficult uh, if it's just a qualitative result. So I'm always one that's pushing for uh, don't just identify, do go through with quantitation, but I completely understand that that resources and time and money play a factor in all of this. And, and sometimes we can't get everything that we want. So long as we get maybe some of the opioids, if those are there, uh, then that's uh, most of importance. But uh, certainly if, if these are benzodiazepine only cases, whether they're DUID cases, whether they're clinical presentations to emergency departments, whether they're postmortem cases, I think that if they are benzodiazepine only cases, those cases really should be prioritized for quantitation because we'll never get to a point to be able to understand NPS benzos without more of that quantitative toxicology data. And also, as you mentioned, for some of these groups, there's quite a large number of substances, for, but for benzo and NPS benzos, it's kind of a narrower group. So maybe it might be more you know, easier to prioritize which substances people could start to look into the, the necess necessary work to do this quantitation and then know more and see how necessary it is to apply that to the other substances within the group. It's very hard to, you know, work out how to prioritize your analyses in a tox lab. Uh, you know, you've got so many different types of things you're doing how much work should you spend on NPS, which are really a fairly small part of most tox labs overall workload. But, you know, just coming back to the, the urine question, I think for drug facilitated crimes where you often do have urine, sexual assaults, for example, you often do it and you have urine. How can you ever say that you've screened for, let's say, clonazolam in that case and you haven't detected it if you don't know what levels of clonazolam and adaminoclonazolam you're supposed to be finding in a, a case where someone's taken it? Yeah, that's a good point, Tim. Yeah, certainly uh, from an analytical perspective, when you're trying to develop methods, you need you need something to go off of. Is an LOD of uh, of 10 nanograms per mil good, or is an LOD of 10 nanograms per mil 10 to 100 times too high? Right. Yeah, but I mean, this is we can dream all we want about you know doing all of this stuff. Uh, it does all eventually come back to resources, and everyone has limited resources. And that actually raises an interesting question about the differences around the world in what people are seeing, the number of drugs people are seeing, and it's very stark uh, from the uh, UNODC report that there are some parts of the world which aren't reporting many NPS. Uh, parts of Africa and the subcontinent, India, and into the Middle East not reporting many MPS, is that mainly an issue of detection capability? Is it just not engaged with the reporting mechanisms? Is there legislation issues there? What, what are your thoughts on that? It could be part or all of all of those factors. You know, I think there's, there's some elements to capacity. Uh, there's some elements to overwork on existing uh, substances that they generally uh, look for some in some countries, not necessarily in any specific part of the world. 
I know that the, the, the legislation says that they have to look for these substances and they don't look for things outside of it. So there's kind of part of the process that we have to do and all of the work that we do is, is awareness raising amongst member states when they all come to Vienna for the global meetings, as well as when we each of us go and talk in forensic network meetings or uh, conferences is about raising this awareness amongst laboratories in the in countries that need to maybe have a look to see if what they're looking for could be expanded to give us a better picture of what, what we're seeing. All right. Well, let's let's switch topics a bit. Drug checking has become a big thing in many parts of the world, whether it's at festivals or just surveying what's out there. Uh, I know, Alex, you've been involved a bit in this, in, in testing things that are just available um, to see what's in there. With NPS, it's obviously a lot more difficult to detect, especially if you're talking about mobile drug checking services. We here in uh, my part of the world are currently writing some guidelines on drug checking and how it should be done, how it can be done, and technology does limit it a little bit if you're trying to do it from a mobile point of view. Can these kind of drug checking services hope to detect NPS? Uh, Should they be trying to detect these broad range of NPS or just focusing on a few narrow ones that are the main ones we see? What do you think? Um, so I'd say that first to start off, um, that drug checking programs really are a critical piece in this harm reduction puzzle. So it's great to see more and more programs uh, emerging. But the other piece to that is that uh, really no two drug checking programs are alike. They are very different throughout the world and, and how these programs are set up, uh, sort of what they're designed to do, what they're designed to catch. Some programs are focused more on uh, understanding uh, as Mike calls it, these MACD events, the uh, mis-selling, adulteration, cutting, dilution, those types of scenarios, while other programs are focused on truly identifying the, uh, the substance that's present because they could be NPS. So um, yeah, I think it just depends on uh, how the program is set up. Certainly, it's really easy to compare sort of what's going on in the field with FTAR, fentanyl test strips, or other types of technology versus what is happening in a lab, which is a lot more of a controlled environment. Uh, We've got a little bit more high-powered instruments, uh, better identification power. But yeah, I think it really comes down to uh, the instruments that that the programs are using and and really the expertise that the people who are using those instruments and and interpreting that data have. Um, I... I would say that most of the programs that I'm aware of and I've talked with, really the field side of this and detecting NPS probably isn't really set up to do that. These FTIR instruments are are really good at, uh, or at least the way that these FTIR instruments are being used in the field for drug checking, they're really good at uh, getting a quick result and comparing to a library. Um, If you have new and emerging NPS that aren't in the library, I don't think that uh, in most places, the people using those instruments and and looking at that data would have the expertise to interpret it. They may get to a point where they say they've got an unknown or they may say, I just don't have anything. And then they want to pursue additional testing. Uh, But again, the way that a lot of these programs are set up, it's, it's really my opinion that that the laboratory component of it is really the best place to, to be finding the NPS and, I know that sometimes that's unfortunate because you want more of an immediate result. I know that when, when you get to the lab stages, it's not uh, it's not results in 10 minutes. It's results in a couple of days or a week. Uh, but yeah, I, again, I think it really, really depends on how these programs are set up uh, and the expertise that's there. And uh, I do think there's a, a huge opportunity in the future for labs who have libraries uh, or have access to refer- reference material for MPS to help build. FTIR databases, and we can get as many new and emerging NPS into FTIR databases and share those FTIR databases, then I think the field application of that FTIR to ecstasy tablets or Xanax tablets to to identify those new NPS becomes a little bit easier. 
Maybe just to add, I think for from the way we see it, these are key people of early warning. You know, if whether this is a national early warning process or stakeholders involved in it, the, the drug checking services are, are are key. And I think you know, if there's a connection between the level of the work that they are carrying out and the complementarity of the work that's carried out by the forensic laboratories, that that connection needs to be uh, stronger or as kept as strong as it is in some cases where these places have been have checking services have been have been successful. And also, there's a lot of IR databases that are generally updated. Um, I know Swig Drug has a good FTIR databases. So making sure amongst the drug checking services that they are aware of all of the resources that could be available to them that are we know are available for the forensic science community, that make sure that they're applicable across the board. I think that might help a lot as well. Kyle, that's a, a really good point in terms of the early warning aspect of this. Uh, and it's really one of the uh, key reasons that we have our, one of our drug checking programs with uh, with the city of Philadelphia here in the United States. We always say that sort of the information that we get from that program is, I mean, it may not be an early warning of a new NPS, but it's an early warning of a new phenomenon. And you're catching it in the drug material before potentially there is any harm. So, so it's never good. I always say it's never good to identify a new NPS after the first death, right? We always want to identify it before that. We want to identify it in the powder as it's entering the country. We want to identify it in the drug material after maybe it's been prepared in that country. Um, once someone has died or, or there's been a series of deaths, we've sort of missed that, that opportunity. So the drug checking in terms of an early warning or a uh, or a harm reduction aspect of this. I mean, catching these things early on is is really the benefit to being able to then make sure you uh, make those identifications, figure out how you're going to report that information and disseminate that information, not only to our scientific communities and the medical community, but report that information and disseminate it to the public. And also you can, you can catch some elements of change in the market a lot earlier through drug checking services than through law enforcement seizures in some cases. I mean, at the moment, we seem to be seeing some changes in the MDMA market in parts of Europe, particularly with substitution with cathinones and so on. And it's here that the drug checking services, whilst, you know, obviously, you know, we can have uh, reports of from law enforcement of these illicit uh, cathinone laboratories and so on. It's actually seeing it in uh, MDMA or ecstasy tablets that people are bringing in for checking that's uh, critical in terms of at least helping us identify these early signals. Yeah, I think as long as we're using uh, IR, it, it is going to be a little bit limited though in terms of detecting exactly what's there. We need a, a cheap and portable time-of-flight mass spectrometer that you can stick in the back of a van, um, but we're not there yet. Yeah, some some programs have tried to use portable mass spectrometry based applications, not time of flight, but certainly uh, GCMS or, or some other uh, types of instruments. And um, the experience we've had is that they're they're just not there yet. Uh, it's great technology. It's great emerging technology. It's just it's just not to a place where it fits that need. I mean, credit to the FTAR vendors. They've done a really great job in selling those instruments. Uh, I think they do a very good job in answering certain questions, but they don't answer all the questions that you said, Tim, uh, especially when you get these different um, mixtures of drugs. I think some of the vendors say that that the FTAR won't detect things that are less than 5% of the total material. Uh, and we found that sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not, that that 5% is not a hard hard and fast line. But but yeah, when you have a, a benzodiazepine tablet that has uh, a small amount of the benzo in it versus the filler, is that something that's going to be able to be detected? Um, I will say there's, um, when you look at ben NPS benzodiazepines, there actually is some opportunity in the NPS benzodiazepine realm to use benzodiazepine test strips, like fentanyl test strips. 
Uh, and you see a number of, uh, at least here in the United States and Canada, uh, you see a number of programs implementing uh, these benzo test strips to see if they have these benzodope scenarios. Is there fentanyl mixed with bromazolam, fluoroprazolam, atizolam, whatever it may be? Certainly, there's going to be a limitation there based on the cross-reactivity of those strips. So uh, I would say that there's really not any test strips for any other class. Uh, the only one that works well, just like we see in the Tox Lab with ELISA, the only, uh, the, only ones that, the only MPS that play well with those types of uh, more basic screening technologies are, are really NPS benzos, but there is some opportunity there. And but 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 again, more work to be done and understood. So speaking of uh, these diverse range of classes of NPS, Mike, you were mentioning to me uh, off air before we recorded about some nitrous oxide reports that you've seen in Europe. What's happening there? Yeah, so it could be classed as a as an NPS, but we're not actually monitoring it as a new psychoactive substance in Europe. Obviously, you know, it's been used for almost 250 years for its psychoactive effects. But what we've seen in the last two, three years in some countries, there's been a big increase in the number of people who are using uh, nitrous oxide. And that's partly because of a, an increased availability of the, you know, the eight gram canisters of the gas but increasingly, uh, we're seeing specific supply for the for the recreational market in terms of disposable uh, cylinders, such as the half kilogram, two kilogram uh, cylinders, um, that are making obviously larger quantities of the gas more available uh, more cheaply. So, in some countries, they've seen an increase in poisons being reported, particularly to poison centres. Small but significant increase in in poisonings over the last few years, particularly things related to uh, neuropathy. But also, as these cylinders have become more common, things like burns and barotrauma as well in, in some cases. So it's something that we've been working on, and uh, we have a, a report coming out soon on the, on the situation in Europe. Also reviews the, the really quite complex pharmacology of the, of the substance as well. But I think it's just, it's just interesting to see that when you look at nitrous oxide, you can almost see sort of like three sort of distinct phases in terms of its kind of recreational use. Initially, when it you know first emerged like 250 years ago, it was you know used in laughing gas parties and everything, but obviously availability was quite limited. And then from the late 60s, use particularly in Canada started to sort of grow. But it's in the last sort of 10 years or so, I think that this is when it's sort of become increasingly available through these canisters and being used recreationally, where we're kind of starting to see it becoming in some areas, a problem, particularly as you've got these canisters because people are using more of it, perhaps in a more problematic way as well, heavier, more frequent use as well, which is obviously linked, heavier frequent use is obviously linked to these um, chronic side effects, particularly the, the neuropathies. Analytically, it's a very difficult one for toxicology labs to analyze. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this became very widespread, if it was seriously underreported in terms of tox labs reporting it, because Hardly anyone looks for it. It's very difficult and you need a special setup in your lab. So it's definitely not the kind of thing Tox Labs would, even if they thought there was a suspected case, they're probably more likely to just say, based on the circumstances, this is what it probably is. We're not going to bother looking for it even. But I mean, you're right. What you say, Mike, about it's not exactly a new substance, but a lot of these new psychoactive substances aren't necessarily new. You know, they're based on old pharmaceutical patents and things like that. So um Different parts of the world have different definitions, I suppose. I mean, you have the definition in Europe based on the conventions. Alex, I don't know exactly how you guys define NPS in the United States. 
That's a great question. We uh, we do have our own definition through our NPS discovery program. Uh, it's very much based on EMCDDA and UNODC's definitions because we didn't want to deviate too much. Um, but there is a category in there. We have it broken down into five categories. There is a category in there that's new ways of use or, or new habits of use. Um, so that sort of goes along with what, with what Mike's saying. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a new drug. Uh, it could be something that's been around forever. I think so something that would fall into that category and you look back would probably be fentanyl, right? Fentanyl was used medicinally and then it was eventually incorporated into the heroin supply. Certainly we don't consider fentanyl an NPS. But yeah, there's there's these scenarios where where NPS can be things that are uh, that are around us all the time, but but something happens, uh, there's some new laws or new uh, new manufacturing regulations that allow for this drug to proliferate. Yeah, I think we have our definition for a legal and, and for a monitoring sort of uh, perspective. But overall, I mean, we still, despite the fact that the early warning system in Europe is set up to monitor and respond to NPS, we do monitor for changing trends and threats related to existing sort of control drugs. And as Alex said, the example of fentanyl in the US is, is classic because, okay, it's controlled, but it's new in a way. Okay, less so now, but uh, five, six, seven years ago, it, you could almost say that it was a, a new drug in terms of new to the illicit drug market, let's say. I think from our perspective, for all of us here, it's, it's important to like not be defined <laughs> by what we're looking for, because I think we're always looking for things that are of concern for laboratories. And I think um, toxic adulterants or other substances that start to emerge. But one other thing to mention is that in some cases, many countries, when they have their legislation, if they put something then under, under their own national legislation, they may not consider it an NPS anymore. So we kind of have to keep an eye out for the differences that, that they have in many countries around the world and how they then look for things in order to adjust how we provide support and guidance and, and assistance to the way that they do their work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was talking earlier about 4-chloromethcathinone, 4-methylmethcathinone as if they're NPS. I still see them as NPS because they're yeah. kind of relatively new, but obviously under international control. Yeah, if I, I looked at like the substances that have persisted, the top five substances across groups that have persisted in the last three or four years, and they are all substances that have been recommended or have been scheduled. So we would still would consider them an NPS in terms of knowing what's out there in the market. So. Yeah, I mean, the other point, as you, as you already mentioned, Connor, is, is the fact that despite something maybe under, under international control, it may not actually be controlled nationally for quite a while in some cases. And that's something that we've been kind of looking at, not just at a European perspective, but thinking about, for example, almost like the persistence of atizolam and fluvalprazolam as examples on the, on the drug market, despite them being under international control for a relatively longer period sort of thing, but still sort of being... Um, sort of sold on the drug market and how some countries don't necessarily control them as quickly as other countries. Um, and I think that that's helping us better understand why we continue to see some MPS that have been long controlled in Europe on the European markets, possibly because of the not being controlled in producer countries or because of demand, say, in America and Canada. I think I agree. No, for in some cases, for substances that are like included in the sixty-one convention that are opioids, maybe the process nationally for these to be incorporated in legislation is relatively straightforward. But maybe for the consultative process that occurs nationally, in order to get all of the information from all the um, the companies that may be involved in potential manufacture of chemicals, makes that non-standard across other substance groups. So that makes it a kind of a drawn out process in some countries. 
mean, this topic of international control and, and scheduling is is always very fascinating to me. And I think we could probably have an hour long talk on this just to compare what things are scheduled and controlled that still proliferate and what things are scheduled and controlled that don't proliferate. And how do you find the line between the two? Uh, scheduling and control work really well, it seems like for some classes and, uh, and maybe not as well for others. I know here in the United States, the primary ca uh, synthetic cathinones that we've seen are uh, were, were utilone and now dimethylpentalone. Well, it's interesting, both of which are considered Schedule One substances by the DEA in the U.S. because they are isomers of pentalone and enethylpentalone. However, dimethylpentalone is soaring in the United States, even though it's considered a Schedule One drug. It is just fascinating to see uh, sort of what breaks the rules, what follows the rules, and what makes its own rules. <laughs> just, just to add that when there's a when there are international scheduling decisions, we have to do stuff kind of quickly enough to try and develop multilingual dictionaries for all the laboratories and try and get some methods produced and see if we can add these substances if we deem it necessary to our reference standards collection so we can assist the work of laboratories. This is for ours to make sure the forensic labs have the capacity maybe to identify following scheduling decisions, but that still doesn't relate to the process that they do have to do nationally to put things in their legislation. Yeah, well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Thanks very much for joining me again, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.